Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. Thank you so much for being here. I'm joined today by one of my co-hosts, Miss Bailey Perkins. Hello, how are you? Hello, Andy. I am great. Thanks it's for Friday, being here. As it is. That's right. It's Friday, like always, and it's good every week. Um, Scott is not with us today. Um, he is working this afternoon and uh, during the time that we're recording, but we are joined by a very special guest, uh, a woman who I think is the state senator for both Bailey and I, right? Are we yes. both in the same district? Yay. So it's really a constituent meeting, right? That's right. It's a constituent meeting, which is hilarious because Bailey and I live a good distance apart and don't ever go to each other's parts of town. Uh, and so uh, that that voice you hear is Senator Julia Kurt from Senate District 30. Hello, Senator. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. We are doing a bit of a preview this week of what to expect because, as listeners well know, the, 50, the first regular session of the 58th legislature kicks off on Monday at noon with the governor's state of the state address. Uh, I will not be attending because it'll be inside, but it makes me think back to his uh, inauguration address two years ago and how cold that was standing outside on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, but they are greatly restricting access to the Capitol for this. And for listeners who haven't ever attended or, or watched the state of the state, it happens before a joint session of both chambers. Uh, and so typically, the Senate goes over to the House and y'all sit like three to a desk, but that's not what's happening this year. Is that correct? All right. Legislators are actually sitting up in the gallery. I'm going to be watching from my office. They really had a limited number that could get in. So we try to make sure that leadership could be there. And some people are going to sit up in the gallery and then the rest of us are going to watch it um, through right. the stream, thankfully. Yeah. And it's not like you have to vote on anything. It's really just a... Sharing information. It's, yeah. It's a not pomp and circumstance, but yeah, ceremonial, right? Um, and so during that, the governor there in the House chamber will deliver a state of the state. And as you mentioned, it will be streamed on the House website, which, of course, is okhouse.gov. Uh, I will definitely be watching. It is always interesting because the the speech, which we'll talk about more next week after it happens, but it's the governor's laying out of his legislative priorities, his vision for the state for the next year. And, uh, you know, if we really had our notes and our wits about us, Bailey, we could come back in May and find out how much of, <laughs> of what the governor said he wants does it get done. In years past, it has sometimes been a contentious speech, particularly under the previous governor, Governor Fallon. Um, I was I was there, uh, whatever year that was, 2017, I guess, when the people unfurled the big banner, the state of despair banner with her face on it. Yeah. Um, just by happenstance, they were down the row for me. And so all the photos that the media took barely clipped me out. And I'm appreciative of that. Yeah, just <laughs> Andy leaning over. Hi, guys. Uh, I don't know who they were that, that did that, but um, it was well, one of those things. Even where... among the legislature and the governor at that time, there was tension about what would happen with the budget. Yeah, well, because I think that was the speech where she said she was she wanted to end sales tax on groceries, which is a good thing, but we were facing like a $900 million budget shortfall. And she said that, and there was like silence, like no, no applause. Everyone was like, what? Uh, and so, yeah, sometimes the speech can be out of sync with perhaps the prevailing attitudes and plans of the legislature. 
Yeah, I don't know if we'll get as much of a sense of that this year, but I, you know, I've only attended two. Um, well, I've attended a couple as an advocate, but as legislator, I've, fin- I've attended two. The first was the governor's first act, essentially, and, and he got standing ovations constantly. There was a lot of enthusiasm. Last year was totally different, quiet. Um, I don't think there were any standing ovations. And there was a real pall over the room. And it ended up being true that the whole the whole session was a contentious between the legislature and the governor. And we talked about that for uh, several episodes on the pod of how unusually tense it has been between the leadership of the legislature and the governor's office because the priorities just have not aligned. And so from the legislature to um, some statewide officials to uh, conflict with even like superintendents and things, the tribes, (laughs) we've seen a lot of tension between this governor and different governing um, bodies. And so it'll be interesting to see what the response is going to look like at the state of the state. Yeah, I don't. And I'm, I'm actually interested to find out. And I'm excited for our podcast already for next week because I don't have any I don't really have a good sense of what the governor's going to lay out as his priorities. Like normally I've heard a few things uh, or I, I just, that, you know, that I've heard him talking about leading up to it. I mean, do, did you want to speculate or no? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead and speculate. Well, I mean, one challenge. Um, I mean, we know managed care and the Medicaid expansion through managed care. You know, the governor announced today, Friday, the companies who won the RFP, the request for proposals for taking over $2 billion in in managed care for health. Um, That's going to be, I mean, if you want to talk about legislative preview, that's going to be the biggest fight that is clear. Um, The legislature is very split on it. Um, and it's not caucus to caucus. It's not rural urban. There's no clear lines there between it. So I can't imagine. I don't know what the current kind of count is, um, but there's even for those who support managed care, they're not happy with how the governor's done it because he announced it um, in the midst of the pandemic. And really, uh, I think they put the RFP out in June. So it was after the legislature had left the Capitol and now clearly chose to announce the, the recipients, the businesses that got this, this contract before the legislature came back. So I'll just say that those, those are not ways to uh, mend fences in your relationship with the legislative leaders. Especially with two of the leaders who um, are regarded as the had lawmakers on healthcare issues. So two of the, on, on the House and Senate side have um, overtly raised concern and frustration about how that process took place. And so there's going to be a massive grassroots movement from those sectors that are impacted as well, um, which, I mean, I'm thankful those sectors are speaking up because we know that the um, Medicaid population, individuals who receive Medicaid services aren't able to advocate at the same rate, you know, those aren't the voices we hear. So luckily, it also impacts hospitals and doctors and dentists and physicians and nurses and a lot of other voices who will speak about the system and their concerns about the system. Yeah. And listeners, I'll add um, that House Majority Floor Leader John Eccles, who's been on the podcast, I think he was on last year early on to talk about things. Uh, I invited him today and he had a conflict and couldn't join us. But last week he was on Nondoc's new podcast and he talked about that in his perspective and where he knows some of his uh, caucuses 
and it was uh, it was a good talk. It was really interesting. He's he's always a good or a good uh, guest, and um, hopefully we'll have him on here in a few weeks. Well, to, and he's in the healthcare industry, so he's yeah, got right. kind of multiple hats there. Um, but you know, I'm really curious what he's going to do about budget. The governor, what the governor's going to do about budget proposals? They, you know, his two year secretary of budget, secretary Maisie left, and so I don't know who's spearheading the budget efforts internally. If it's just the OMES staff, or if um, his new Secretary of State Bingman is taking the lead on that. So I'll be really curious what he proposes budget-wise. Agencies have been coming in with flat budgets or reduced budget requests so far in health and human services. Right. And that's been the news this week. It really is all of the agency budget hearings, which you know used to be they would come in and be like, we need a billion dollars more to do all these things. And finally, I think that the legislature and perhaps the executive branch kind of said like, listen, like we all know you want more money, but that's not happening. We need you to give us realistic numbers here so we can talk about what we're looking at and what we can fund and what we can't. And especially in years like this year where it it's not going to be as dire as we thought it was, at least so far, right? I feel like in 2021. No, the revenues are good so far compared to estimates. Right, right. Um, and we already gave them cuts for this fiscal year. I mean, we cut, most agencies were cut 4% this fiscal year. Yeah. Except for education. I think some agencies did receive some federal assistance through CARES Act funding. So I think that might be another element as to where agencies don't feel as much um, tension um, in making the budget decisions as they would in past years. Yeah, the federal government's making a better match of those Medicaid dollars. And so that's we saw that in the budgets of the Department of Veteran Affairs, the mental health. Um, we saw it, of course, in the Healthcare Authority and Department of Human Services. But, you know, those aren't things we can count on. Um, I have real concerns. Frankly, you know, when you say that about they used to come in with these wild budgets and I heard that complaint from others, um, including Leader Eccles. I want the agencies to show us what the gap is. Um, and I hear from my colleagues all the time, well, how much is enough? And, oh, we need to, we're throwing money down a black hole and how much is enough? Well, when agencies try to show that to my colleagues, they frequently don't want to hear it. Um, and and so I don't blame agency directors for showing us what they really need. Um, I think that's a voice that needs to be there. Maybe it has to come from outside because the agency directors get, you know, their knees cut off if they try to come in with a, with an accurate reflection of what the human needs are. But we've, that's what we've asked them to do is serve those needs. And if they're able to say, hey, we could do this much more with this much money, I want to see that. Like, I think a couple of years ago when Superintendent Hoffmeister laid out the plan for reaching a counselor core that's truly up to national standards for the student to counselor ratio, that was out of range budget wise, but it was a very important aspirational budget goal to put forward for how much it would cost. And OK, well, let's get a quarter of the way there or a half of the way there. Um, and I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's powerful in the idea of if we're going to become a top 10 state, how do we give the agencies the capacity and resources that they need to be able to do the things that at a bare minimum to the example you gave meet standards or meet national standards or or whatever it is that um, fills the gap in needs. And so we're constantly talking about, you know, how we're last and everything good and first and everything bad, but then we're always trying to figure out how do we stretch our dollars um, to help agencies just barely get by. And that doesn't help you to um, achieve the things that you want to. But yeah, and our, 
our budget process almost always begins with what we got last year and revenue we think we're going to get in. And I understand that that's realistic, but at the same time, we never give ourselves flexibility in terms of the revenue side. We only adjust the expense side. Um, so it's not really reflecting what state government needs to be doing. Or, you know, like Secretary Maisie said, he was trying to get agencies to work on a 10-year plan. But when you're an agency person and every year you're putting forth budget proposals and they get denied or everybody gets a flat budget or a specific increase, it's hard to spend the time to make plans like that if they never get funded. <laughs> How can they invest their staff time and energy in that if the money never comes, you know? That's what I was going to say is that by them presenting their, you know, dream budget, it gives everyone something to work towards, right? Like I, ideally, that's how we're supposed to, to some degree, handle our personal finances, right? It's like you pay your bills, but also you're saving or working towards something, a new house, a new car, a vacation, a television, you know, uh, whatever it is that you're into. And, and but you got to know how much it is and what it's going to take to get there. And when I worked for, you know, one of the universities here a few years ago, that was our plight, right? We were, our department was largely funded through federal grants, which were also flat the entire time I was there. But the amount of money that the university gave us to help underwrite some of our operational expenses was always the same, if not decreasing, commensurate with the enormous cuts that the universities and higher ed was receiving from the legislature over the last 10 years. And I always had a really hard time. You know, I had 25 uh, staff that, that reported to me and they would get very frustrated um, because, the, you know, there weren't raises. And I was like, nope, like we'd have gotten no more money. And they're like, well, how do we, we need new chairs. Like our carpet hasn't been replaced in 10 years. It's disgusting. And I was like, yeah, sure enough. The best example now is um, our Department of Health. They've had inadequate equipment, they needed a building, and now we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> and so all of that could have been useful if we, you know, had the resourcing to um, put into that earlier. So well, here's the financial stuff that I never see. And, you know, tell me if I'm getting too deep into the weeds here. But um, like, for instance, I'm on the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency Committee, Oversight Committee. So that's LOFT that was passed last year. It's a legislative, um, supposed to be independent of the executive branch to analyze finances and other program evaluation. Um, last week, they presented about how our revenues are estimated. So the board of equalization process, um, um, because they wanted to analyze how those decisions are made. How do we estimate that? And what I never see are long-term trends, long-term projections, analysis of our changes over time in terms of different tax bases. Um, you know, people decry the way we depend on oil and gas, but we don't actually look at the trends in other areas and ways we can beef them up, you know? I, that, that reminds me, I'm actually going to reach out to um, John Michael Montgomery, your colleague there in the Senate, because he and I have had this conversation before. And I heard on NPR this morning that General Motors has announced that they plan to stop selling gasoline-based vehicles in 2035, which is 14 years. Now, whether or not they actually do that, we'll see, but that is a earth shattering, like a tremendous change. That doesn't mean gasoline cars are going away, but we have depended on the fuel tax to pay for our roads. And if people aren't driving gasoline-based cars, they don't buy gas, they're not paying the fuel tax. And 
I was like, oh, we need to start talking about this because well, it's, you know, there's been proposals. There have been proposals, and there will there's some filed this year on that issue. I have issue with us making so many earmark taxes. You know, we make a lot of earmark taxes. It leaves us with very little flexibility. And then we're bought into a very specific route for years and years and years. Um, like, I mean, that was that was advocacy. You know, when you look at like past advocacy, the roads and bridge builders and the county roads people advocated for that fuel tax to go to roads. And it's been so effective that we all buy in that it has to be that way. Um, but it really doesn't, you know. Uh, anyway. Well, and we do the same thing with education too, right? Like that that we dedicate certain funding streams to education. And then if those underperform like the lottery or if they increase or something, then we are hamstrung on how we can actually fund that department. Now, listen, one of the hopeful things is I, I hear people on both sides of the aisle having the conversation of the need to diversify our tax base and think about um, what we can do to ensure that there's revenues available beyond oil and gas. Now, how that actualizes is a whole nother story, but there's at least, um, it's on the minds of, of, of people on both sides of the aisle that it's a necessary issue that, you know, we don't get to it soon. It'll be too late in figuring this out. I would raise is, you know, even like Secretary Maisie, the governor's staff estimated that it was $1.6 billion in income tax credits, rebates and deductions and exemptions, um, and then a billion dollars in sales tax exemptions. So those are some long-term policy decisions that we've made. And I think sometimes we let them just float along. We scrutinize every dime that our Department of Human Services is spending. But when it comes to the revenues that we're turning away with policy decisions, I don't feel like we give it that same level of scrutiny. Well, and that's true because it's easy for individual businesses and lobbying entities to fight for their credit or their rebate or, or whatever it is. And so when we do this comprehensive change, it has to be a large overhaul rather than you know, picking and choosing the winners. And that's something that I've heard several lawmakers bring up um, because otherwise, if we, you know, try to do this industry here and try to do this industry there, um, we're just going to go back to square one because people are going to fight for their rebate and their tax credit, which, you know, makes sense for them to fight for what they formerly had. So, I mean, it's building that public will to do that. The problem is, no one advocates for neutral tax policy from what I've seen. Everyone advocates for tax policy that benefits themselves. There's very like, so except for, so I went to a briefing with the tax foundation. I think it's called, it's a real conservative think tank. They came to brief us in Oklahoma about our tax credits. And I, I may have been the only person in the minority party there. And their big emphasis was on neutrality and tax credits that, when states try to pick industries or focus on specific industries, we miss the boat because we are slow. State government is not quick. And there's a reason for that. There's some really good reasons for that. But we're not nimble. We don't turn on a dime. So we are picking industries that are not necessarily on the rise. You know, we are not able to forecast out unless we are neutral about it and are reaching out for innovation and, you know, companies that are moving forward in different ways. 
we can't predict what's going to happen in 10 years as as legislators right now you know yeah yeah who knows um that's interesting and do do we still have an office or a department or someone that is supposed to be looking into the benefit of tax credits yeah yeah so we still have something yeah the incentive evaluation commission is still in existence um but you know and i followed their work and read every report and i'll say that there's some legislators that read them and the consultants do good work you know they do good analysis and it's pushed for better data it's still not great we're going through the second round of the credits that had already been reviewed and some areas where they still don't have the data they need so i'm like okay well that's not an improvement but it's very separate from the legislative process. And I would say the political will is not built into the process. So the commission's doing great work, but it's kind of like, uh, you know, a researcher handing us a report. It's not, it doesn't have the political will with it. Does that make sense? So I don't think they're not suggesting big, hard changes. And even if they do, they're kind of ignored by the legislature. Right. Oh, you know, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Senator Kurt, let's talk a little bit about you specifically and some of the bills that you are uh, running or looking at this year. Now, I, and just for listeners to know, um, you sit on the Senate Finance Committee, the Rules Committee, which we love to make fun of, not because of you, but just because that's where bills go to die. Come yeah, on, that's the rules, rules. <laughs> and then uh, veterans. Well, not always, because there was that session where some bills did slip through the rules process. So it's it's a it's a um oh, oh how would I describe that committee? Um, it's a catch-all. It's a catch-all. It's a catch-all, but it's it could be a strategic one too. <laughs> it's 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 not even scheduled at a specific time. It's at the call of the chair. Which, which you know that you're in trouble when you're on a committee that doesn't have a specific meeting time. Absolutely. It's interesting. I didn't realize that Senator Jack is the uh, is the chair, but I've been watching a number of his bills, so I'll be curious to see yeah, what happens Senator with some Jack. of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then you're also on Veterans and Military Affairs, Appropriations, and the Appropriations Subcommittee for Health and Human Services. So you, and this is normal, everyone sits on multiple committees, but those are some big ones, right? Finance, rules, appropriations. These are all um, uh, very important committees. So I know you're running some bills that deal with ethics um, and elections and probably some other stuff I haven't followed yet. Where do you want to start? Well, I mean, I'll just start with, um, I mean, it was really great when I got those committee assignments. I didn't know how much I would enjoy the finance committee, but, you know, really understanding the money of our government and how it operates and, and those rules are so important to the, to, to knowing what our state is prioritizing. And then rules focuses on ethics and elections, um, which to me is the basic playing field of how anyone participates and making sure constituents can speak up. And it's been really appropriate. One thing Senate district uh, 30 has in common is people, um, what was raised to me a lot was corruption, concerns about corruption. That's the word that people used. You know, I talk about it more in terms of fairness and transparency, um, but I had a lot of folks that are very concerned about systems that, that benefit some and leave out others. Um, so it really made sense that I got to sit on rules. Um, I'm adding appropriations this year and I'm pretty excited about it in that way that, you know, everything that goes through there, I want to know and I want to read every one of those bills. Um, so anyway, but so in terms of bills that I'm running, yeah, I ran a couple of ethics bills. You know, I'm not sure that they will be well received. I'll say that um, there's a feeling with some legislators that if I'm talking ethics, that I'm pointing the fingers at someone specific. 
but it's really to me a system that ensures that that doesn't happen. So I'm not trying to say someone specific is being corrupt. I'm trying to say, shouldn't the public know that we're being fair and equitable? Um, so, but the one that I hope I might get a hearing for really is there's a, a financial disclosure that happens annually um, where you have to disclose your major investments and ownership stake in for-profit businesses. And I really think our cabinet, our governor cabinet members and the directors that he appoints need to do those disclosures. So because, you know, in the hiring process, you might discover those things, but with the governor appointing the directors of these entities, and now they have total control over um, budgets, contracting, et cetera, I think it's incredibly important that we just get some basic information. Um, right now, the, um, you know, the media have to try to suss that out, and it's very difficult um, but I think especially when he's running it like a business, I think it's important that that we're able to see information about what businesses we're talking about. Um, and our ethics committee uh, commission is 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 hampered by some financial limitations. Um, and I'll keep pushing on that. It's hard. You know, there's a natural tension between the legislature and ethics. Um, but I feel like we have not funded our ethics commission or allowed them to keep their funding enough that they can do investigations. And that's a huge concern for me. And then elections, you know, trying to make sure our elections are, are more accessible. And this is something, you know, certainly my caucus has been strong advocates for years. Senator Floyd ran early voting bills. Um, she's on it with trying to make the absentee process smoother. I'm really focused on registration. Um, I've decided that my automatic voter registration uh, bill really is a reduce the red tape of voter registration, right? Well, and you have, so you have two about voter registration. One is basically automatic voter registration. So whenever someone goes to get their driver's license or any state ID, they would automatically, yep, automatically check and get them registered. And then don't you also have one that, um, that, oh, my brain just. Yeah, I off. do. I have one that's, um, specifically to make the online voter registration complete. So we, this was authorized by the legislature in 2015 and is yet to be completed. And so I ran this bill last year with a deadline. The secretary of election said it was too soon a deadline. And he suggested uh, December of 2021 and I amended it, but it barely got through committee and did not get a floor hearing. Um, so I brought it back up again, you know, not, I may or may not get a hearing, but I want to make sure that we're keeping track of that process. Um, it's now been two, two presidential election cycles. Um, and, and the other thing I just found out the other day, I was like, how many people are turning 18 each year? 50,000 Oklahomans turn 18 each year. And so you think about that many kids trying to figure out how to register to vote. Um, they're being forced to register for the draft online, but they can't register to vote online. Um, and we have the systems in place now to do it safely. It's no less safe than than someone mailing in a form. I'm sure they get fraudulent forms all the time, and there's a there's a verification process. So I'm hoping we can get that finished up this year. Because we even have uh, growth in population in our state. So as people move here from other places, why make it complicated for people to have to figure out how they can register to vote and how they can, you know, participate in our systems. And so uh, on, on several fronts, there's a whole lot of Oklahomans that we're, we're leaving out of the process. And I'm grateful that you have um, taken up this mantle of election reform um, to champion it because it's um, necessary. And I think more people across the country 
um, for whatever reason you're paying attention to elections are realizing that, you know, the security and the sanctity of, of our process and making sure everybody has access is incredibly important. So, yeah, you know, the thing I think we, that they haven't been able to quantify and and I, you know, I feel like Let's Fix This is certainly engaged with this is um, the frustration or confusion factor of the process itself. So I've had colleagues say to me, well, we don't need to make it easy. Like people need to make the effort. Right. But if we make things hard and confusing, how much is that part of what turns people away? Um, our participation rate is significantly lower than the rest of the country. One of the lowest of eligible voters who are registered and participating in the country. So I, I think confusion is part of it. Some people say, oh, they think they can't change anything. I'm like, yeah. But if you are not sure that you make a difference with your vote and it's a half day process or you're in the middle of a pandemic, are you going to take those extra steps if you're also not sure that your vote makes a difference? That's true. That's right. Yeah. And I think we talked about this last week, but just so listeners know, during this past presidential election where turnout was way higher all across the country, including Oklahoma, we had like record high turnout. And yet we still had the lowest turnout uh, of any other state, right? Or one of the lowest. And so the fact that even when we all show up as best we can, we still don't show up at a rate that's even in the middle of the pack for the rest of the country. And we should glorify people waiting in lines for hours just to participate in the vote. And we should not I mean, be proud well, of that. Mm-mm. Yeah, at all. And a lot of that is rooted in our systems. So agreed. And I think the other thing with that was we were real proud of getting our numbers turned into the media fast. And, you know, I'm glad for that. I'm glad for our quick, frankly, our system that is electronic and has paper backup. I'm very glad for that in terms of auditing, etc. But I'm not proud of turning in numbers quickly if there's a lot of people not getting to vote. And and to me, it's about the pattern. So a lot of uh, folks focus on the individual. Okay, well, this individual chose not to participate. But I'm like, when it's numbers like this, and it's over decades and decades, that's a system problem. That's a pattern that shows us a system problem, you know? Right. And so I had a question. I had a question about with online voter registration, what exactly is making it challenging for the state election board to implement? Like what is the holdup in their ability to be able to execute that? Well, from the beginning, from what I understand, clearly I wasn't here, but they tied it to the implementation of the Department of Public Safety Real ID. And the Real ID involves an online identity verification process. So once that finally got done, that's when the Board of Elections could actually use the process they're planning. Um, You know, the Elections Board decided to stay with the Department of Public Safety process and not do their own thing, which they could have done one of a million other options. Um, but now the real ID is up and running, process is there. Um, we still have a system where like, if you move from Oklahoma County to Cleveland County, they will mail you, they'll mail you a registration form that you have to mail back in, in order to get um, re-registered. If you moved within the county, you can get the update automatically through your driver's license update. But, so that's my understanding was the technology choices they made um, the secretary of the board of elections said it's not about money at this point that he has the resources he needs to get it done. Huh. That's a good sign. Yeah. And you know, we've seen this across the country where you mentioned the number of young people that are turning 18 every year and how many of them don't get registered. 
because yes, we live in a digital mobile world. And so if you tell a lot of teenagers, you got to use this form and mail it in, find a stamp. They're like, ah, no, just not, not going to do it. Can I do it for my phone? Like I do my banking, like I do my taxes, like I do everything else. And, and I get it. Like I've got a, a couple of pieces of mail here. Like I have to, I have a bank account for another organization that I have to physically go to the bank. And so this check's been sitting here for a deposit for like two weeks. Cause I'm like, ah, it's an errand. Um, and I'm, I'm going to do it today, but that's the same principle when it comes to voter registration and to some degree voting, but that's a whole different ball game down the road. Right. And I think um, if we don't fix these things at the state level on our own, according to, like well thought out plans that have been kicked around for years and years. Eventually it's going to come back on us when the feds mandate it and they might mandate a way that we don't like. And we end up with this weird back and forth thing like we did with real ID, like we did with Medicaid expansion. And in fact, uh, we may have mentioned this previously and we'll talk about it more in the coming weeks, but uh, there are two bills in Congress, HR one and S one in the Senate. It's the, they're both called the for the people act. And they include um, uh, an aspect or a clause for automatic voter registration nationwide and also mandating that all states like move towards auto, or not just automatic voter registration, but online voter registration. And that they also have um, a, a basically help make the voting system more similar across states where every state would have to be like Oklahoma, where it's. Um, paper ballots that are electronically tabulated. So there's a paper trail to go back, but we can get them counted a little more quickly and, and easier. So we'll uh, we'll see what happens with those. What I love about those proposals is that it adds more uniformity. So as we continue to grow in being such a transient society, people don't have to do you know rocket science trying to figure out how to participate in different areas because um, every time we make little changes it adds confusion to the voters so even the whole dialogue about whether or not we had to require um notarizations during the pandemic right that added levels of confusion for people who are trying to follow the issue um, like my neighbor, uh, coincidentally, is from my hometown. I've known her for a long time and was having conversations about, um, well, I was registered in Lawton, but now I'm here. So how do I, I see that I can fill out a voter registration form online. I had to tell her, no, you can't fill it out online because that's from Comanche County. And so, I mean, so even all of the back and forth and explaining makes it confusing to the voters. And if you have to figure out how to deal with your everyday life. <laughs> do you even have the, the space or capacity to figure out how do I move my life around to be able to participate and vote and take all of these extra steps? And so, um, and that, yeah, that's good participatory government is like, do we want to make people's rights and civic participation harder? Or do we want to make it so that folks can access the services and rights that they have? And I, you know, I, tend to think it's our responsibility to make our services more accessible and available and straightforward, you know? Yeah. I, I will often say like e either you want people to vote or you don't like it. We can boil it down to very simple uh, dichotomies like that. Do you want to make the process 
easier. That doesn't mean it makes it any less secure, but like, do you want there to be long lines or do you not? Like it, let's, and if so, like, let's figure out how we work towards these goals that I think most people genuinely share. Right. I, as we were talking about voter registration, I, I've been building listeners. I've been building build trackers that are actually on our website right now. Um, if you go to letsfixthis.org and go up to the issues tab, there's a, a little build tracker. There's a list of, and I've got them segmented out by topic as I saw fit. Uh, voter registration is one of them. And there's a bill from Senator Yuck about having the state of Oklahoma join a multi-state voter database, basically, to to help make sure that we don't have duplicates if someone moves to Kansas or Texas or someone comes here, that it, we're all in this together, which I think makes a lot of sense, right? Like, yeah, we passed that last year, so it must have gotten, it must have died in the in the pandemic. Um, my biggest concern with that is, and I think we have to keep vigilant about um, knocking people off the rolls for not participating. Um, we have a, a purging process already. And, you know, while I've been reassured that it's very careful and that they're very sure that people aren't, I don't think people should not have access just because they haven't voted lately. People go through all kinds of different things that might limit their participation for a while. I've talked to a lot of people who are thoughtful people who care about their community, but they just weren't able to engage for a while for whatever reason. Um, and they're thorough, like they didn't want to just make guesses. Like, do we only want people coming who might make guesses? Um, anyway, so people get purged out of the off our list. That part of that national registry thing would encourage more purging. And I'm concerned about that, especially because the follow up process is like a form that gets sent out to us. And how many forms do you get in the mail that you disregard because you're not sure they're legit or not? Absolutely. And then even with that, um, Sometimes polling locations change. It's like you may have a voter who voted years ago and they're inspired to vote because, you know, ex candidate knocked on their door and they show up and it's a empty building or it's it's locked <laughs> because it's not their polling location anymore. So like I do have a remark on that, you know, we with redistricting this year, um, there's been a lot of talk at the, at, I've gone to a lot of the town halls that the legislature's put on and a lot of people are confused about the precincts and that is decided by our county election boards. And that's something I'm like, okay, we need to get people speaking up on that because a lot of people have challenges around their precincts and their precinct locations. And I don't really know how they make those decisions because some are big, some are small. Um, you know, my precinct has like three or four polling locations in one place. Um, I want to understand that more and that'll happen after um, the legislative and commit and and county process, but it's important. Yeah. yeah. So we should have a brief note about redistricting. I wish I had a sound effect for this, but listeners, as you know, I talk about this every week or so, but uh, we had some really big news like yesterday or the day before the census bureau officially announced that they're not going to have the data ready by the deadlines. And so they're going to have data for the congressional um, apportionment out here in a few months, still late, but not egregious. However, the actual granular data, like down to the census block data that every state needs in order to do redistricting won't be out until August at the earliest. Um, and it could be later. Cause it's normally April, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, often it's like February that we get the data. Or earlier, yeah. They used to get them to states that have session going on earlier. And so now it's going to be to the fall, which causes some potential ripples, right? Depending, if it's in August, it's probably okay. But looking ahead to 2022, I can't believe I'm saying that, you know, filing for uh, for elections is in April and you have to live in your district for six months prior. So that backs it up to November of this year. So we have to have districts in place ideally by November so that people know what district they live in if they're going to file for office. Um, now, there's ways to deal with that through the courts, which is not a pleasant process or an easy one. Um, but I'm really curious because there are some, because the state constitution stipulates that the legislature must do redistricting by a certain deadline. And if they don't, then it goes to a backup commission, which is ironic um, because it's uh, not elected officials. It's well, it doesn't say it can't be. It just says it's a commission that is appointed by the governor, the pro tem, and the speaker. And they're supposed to each appoint one Republican and one Democrat, which means independents like me don't get, can't get appointed, right? Um, so I'm out unless I change my registration. But also there's no limitations on who those people could be. So in theory, Governor Mary Fallon could change her voter registration to Democrat and then get appointed to serve on this commission. I don't think it's going to happen, but those kind of rules that I we had in our people, not politicians policy to prevent that um, may very well come to rear their ugly head. Well, I, I mean, I would just say, don't start worrying down that path yet. Okay. Like that's, I mean, you're going way far down the rabbit trail there. <laughs> I'll just tell you that, I mean, and, and I know that I probably should be more cynical, but um at least Pro Tem Treat has been very respectful of the minority party. Um, I think because he came out of, he worked on the Senate staff when the Republicans were in a minority. So he, he, the changing of parties thing, I think would, would not fly. But what I'll say is they're not going to want another process to happen because that would be way more even in terms of Republicans and Democrats. Plus um, we already are looking at, you know, they're trying to analyze whether a special session can happen for that purpose. So, I mean, right now they're knee deep in the decision making on what to do with this fluidity around the data. Um, but they're going to want to do it through the legislative process. That's just better for 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 the leadership. I imagine it will it, something will get end up in court. Right. Like I I can't imagine it just goes smoothly along. And I say that because I've been working on this for a year and a half and nothing has gone smoothly <laughs> along about redistricting. And so the fact that it's delayed another six months is truly par for the course. And Senator, speaking of like issues related to redistricting, one new I well, one new concept that the legislature has implemented were the um the meetings that happened in different communities related to redistricting. Uh, do you have any insight about those meetings and, and have you heard anything from constituents on that participated in those meetings? Um, I, you know, I, I mean, the fact that you are both my constituents, <laughs> you know, I, no, no um, I mean, I've attended most of them and I think they're very, um, very straightforward in their presentation. I think it's what I've seen is it's very difficult for Oklahomans to know what to say in terms of feedback. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, so if, if I were to design the process, I might give people more roads into helping with feedback for the feedback to be meaningful. Um, I think what I've heard is mostly people asking about the process, not many people ever knowing what to say about their community. So I think that's, it's, it's difficult to think through. And, you know, I represent a district and I even have a hard time identifying what communities of interest would be important for me to speak up for and what parts of the community need to be more unified. It's very hard to even analyze. So I would just say that it's, it's tough for people to give meaningful input. On the other end, you know, we'll be presented with that data as committee members, but how that data will actually impact the final maps is hard to hard to gauge. Um, I don't know if that's what you're asking me, but I think it's hard to know how the data will be used. And then on the other end, you know, of course, I want to see the maps, the draft maps as soon as possible. Um, that's my dream. Um, we have gotten the commitment that, you know, visual maps will be released when the bill is released, at least, um, for the committee. We just don't know how far ahead that would be. Ideally, we'd have time to look at it and really analyze it, but we don't know for sure what that timeline would be. So, I mean, that's the thing I've certainly talked to our Senate redistricting staff about. Um, and I know they're under a crunch with the census data and their internal processes, but we hope for as much public time then, because I think a lot of people who came to those town halls thought they were going to see draft maps. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, that's the way that I've thought about this, too, is that the delay gives the legislature more time to engage the public, right? And gives the public more time to engage the legislature to talk about these things, to share stuff about their community. And what you mentioned earlier about precinct maps, um, that is very important because just on timeline, the legislature draws congressional maps and legislative maps, and then the counties redraw the county commissioner maps. And then after that, they from there, draw precinct maps and all this. So it's a trickle down effect. But the, uh, I think it was the mayor of Jones, maybe that came to one of the very first. He came to several yeah. meetings, yeah. Um, and so correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember him in the very first one advocating to say, it would be nice if all the people of Jones could vote in Jones because of how the lines are. A lot of them have to vote like in Spencer or somewhere and drive away from town to go vote. And, you know, this comes down to, how you divide up population and it does get tough. But I thought that was a very specific, tangible ask. And I like that he was like, here's my issue. And it wasn't something they can deal with. That's what I was going to say. It, but then it turned out that's not even a, an issue for the legislative redistricting. So, and then there's school board, which is interesting. Apparently school board have more latitude to wait longer to redistrict. They're not under the same onus to like get it one vote, one person within a certain time frame, like the congressional where it has to be so precise, which I'm glad, frankly, I'm glad there's standards to that. Yeah, the the national standard is for congressional seats to be down to the person, if at all possible, right? Yeah, it's incredible. It's why um, Congressman Lucas's district is so massive by landmass <laughs> versus like, uh, you know, CD5 seeming like a tiny square in comparison to some of the other districts. So, yeah. And then state legislative districts are as close as they can. You know, they usually set a threshold of like five or 6%. I think normally they come out to around 3%. And from the experts I've talked to nationwide, often that variance is because when you're down to like, uh, you know, a state house district that only has 38,000 people, you might need a little variance. So you don't have to divide a neighborhood unnecessarily because it would make sense for them to stay in there and a, you know, 
a percentage of a smaller number of people is a bigger number of people. And so it comes out that way. And I think it makes a lot of sense. If I can, the, the, the law around redistricting has really gotten me thinking about the citizen initiative petition. Mm. Do we have time to talk about that? Yeah, sure do. Um, you know, I mean, so much around that, uh, you know, the Voting Rights Act and Equal Protection Clause is looking at how you make sure an individual has power within the, the elected system and um, making sure that's not a overweighted or underweighted power, right? And so I've been thinking about that with the initiative petition um, process, and I'm not a lawyer, so probably I'll get calls from my constitutional friends, but um, that that to me is a case for not some of, not implementing some of the changes to the citizen initiative petition that have been proposed. So things like uh, making it a percentage of a congressional district that have to sign the petition before it can become a state question. To me, that weights some voters more than others. Um, I'd be curious if that would if there'd be any court case around that. Um, but I'm concerned there's there's something like eight or ten different proposals or um, SJRs, the Senate. Uh, resolutions and House House resolutions that would go to the state to a state question to change the ability of Oklahomans to petition and change the laws um, as they want. Yeah, and I've got a section for those on our website as well with the rest of the bill trackers. There's some that I haven't added yet, specific to initiative petition. Um, there's because there's a bunch of like shell bills that all say you know, that are just titled Initiative and Referendum Policy Act of 2021. So those kinds of things. Um, change it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think there, and then there's four other shell bills just to amend Article 5, Section 2, which is the pertinent section. Um, I think altogether there's actually 26, if I remember correctly, bills to deal with it. Um, but well, one of my, I mean, one of the reasons I think we have to be especially vigilant about that is that it's also one of the top issues on the state chamber's legislative agenda. And I have yet to fully understand why, how that makes sense with their membership and their overall goals. Um, so if you're involved with the state chamber, you, you can let me know or you can let them know what you think about that. Well, I think one element is we're seeing a rise in power among um, rural voters in the state and particularly where um, even positions of influence in the legislature are falling. And I've heard the rationale that people believe that the process weights urban areas. So essentially people in Oklahoma City can just collect signatures and then just throw things on the ballot. Um, however, I don't understand why, like where the signatures are collected should matter if everyone has the opportunity to weigh in on whether or not it should happen. And so that's an interesting dynamic that, you know, we're hearing in this um, conversation about reforming the initiative petition process, that it's about the origins of who puts it on the right. ballot rather right. than well, and if the we, outcome. Yeah, if we think that, these state questions that perhaps some rural voters don't think they're good for their area, then we need to remove some of the preemptions. I mean, Oklahoma has a lot of preemptions that don't allow local communities to change things. Like when it comes to, let's say, sentencing, I mean, we don't allow municipalities to change sentencing except for municipal offenses. So it has to happen at the state level. Um, 
Well, and Bailey, the the comment that I've heard is, you know, that a group can just go to the state fair and get all the, in Oklahoma City and get all the signatures they want. And I was like, everyone comes to the state fair. Like, if you're going to get a broad sample of the state, that's a great place to do it. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and also on the weekend, <laughs> right? And you know, arguably, uh, I think more than fifty percent of the state's population lives in the Oklahoma City and Tulsa metro areas combined. So by hitting those two metro areas you do get a cross sample of more than half people in the state. And then, right, you got to pass it at the ballot. And you can't pass it without people in rural areas. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's going to be, those will be, uh, you know, top of the uh, mind issues for us. Uh, so listeners, if you signed up on our email list, you will be getting an email about them very soon um, after the state of the state, because I want to have a I like to try to combine everything into one email so you don't have to get 50 from me with individual issues. No one reads those. I'll just, I'll make it worth your while. Please read if you get an email from me. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Senator Kurt, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Bailey, thanks for being here as well. Of course, Andy. Wouldn't miss it. Listeners, thank you. As we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. That's the whole point. Otherwise, we're just talking to ourselves, and that's no fun. Uh, if you like the podcast, if you find it useful, please consider rating uh, it on Apple iTunes or Spotify or whatever app or website you listen to us on. Tell your friends about it as well. That would be super cool. Paste it into your Twitter feed or your Facebook profile and share it with a friend. I hope you'll tune in and watch the Governor's State of the State Address Monday at about 1230. It will air on OETA as well as on the House website, ok.house, no, excuse me, okhouse.gov. Uh, you can watch it there. And we'll probably have some kind of wrap up about that next week on the show. As we move forward, we'll have more conversations about some of these specific bills, the process of these bills becoming laws, um, what bills go to Senator Kurtz Rules Committee and are never heard from again, and uh, other issues as they arise during session, like they always do. Until then, please remember, decisions are made by those who show up. Have a great week. <laughs>